Well, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Philippians chapter 3. We are continuing our study of the book of Philippians. This is, I believe, the ninth sermon in that book. We come this morning to a a very important, very large text, both in this book and in the New Testament. I feel like I've said that several times in the book of Philippians, but it's true, I promise. This one is really important. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read the first 11 verses. Starting in Philippians 3, 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh... If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Huge text. You could do a lot of weeks, a lot of time in just this text. We are going to do two sermons in this text. So this morning's sermon will focus mainly on Paul. Paul's experience, Paul's testimony, you might say, Paul's conversion experience, his experience with his relationship to the law and righteousness and faith in Christ. So, it'll be very autobiographical this morning, focused on Paul, Paul's attempt to establish his own righteousness pre-conversion, and then post-conversion, his realization that righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ. Paul's content here is very much about Paul, and so our sermon this morning will be about Paul and his experience. The second sermon, uh, next time we're in Philippians, will seek to focus on elements of this text that are universal to all Christians. Uh, Things in this text that speak to every Christian's experience, and there's plenty of that here. So there's things that are true about Paul and specific to him, and then there are also things that are true of every Christian. And the reason that Paul is telling us about himself is to tell us things that are true of all of us. And so the second sermon will seek to focus on that. There's a warmth of the description of what it's like to know Christ, the surpassing worth and excellency of Christ that comes through in this text. That will largely be the topic of the next sermon we see in Philippians. But today, I'll be working with three points here. Number one, we'll look at Paul's premise. 
sort of the opening, what's the context, the reason for discussing all of these things? What does he assert starting out? Second, we'll look at Paul's past. And third, we'll finish up with Paul's present. Now, it might seem odd, it might seem incomplete to talk about Paul's past, Paul's present, and not talk about Paul's future, but uh, the next portion of the text Verses 12 through 21 will focus heavily on the resurrection, Paul's guaranteed glory. That's referenced at the end of our text in verse 11, but that will be a heavy focus in coming weeks, so we'll leave that discussion for that time. So, first, Paul's premise. What's sort of the, the context, the, uh, what, what, how do we get into this text and all of this material? Well, let's look at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So, in these first few verses, Paul's closing up his letter. Finally, he starts. It's interesting, though, because this verse actually marks the halfway point of the letter. So he doesn't do a good job of closing up the letter right here. But he starts off with finally. So as you're reading it, it's almost as if And if you've read a lot of Paul, you'll know a lot of times at the end of his letters, he'll give these series of exhortations. Do this, do this, do this, greet these people. And then he closes up. And if you're reading it, it's almost as if he's about to start doing that, but then he brings up these these dogs, these evildoers, these who mutilate the flesh. And it's, it's like he sees an opportunity to correct something that's amiss with this congregation. And off he goes. So, there have been references already in this book to some enemies, some opponents that Paul is dealing with that are threatening this congregation in some way. But in this text, we get a specifically Jewish sort of flavor to these opponents, right? We we get a Jewish shade that we don't get in the other places. Where does that come through? Well, it comes through in that dealing with circumcision and mutilation of the flesh. So, apparently... It seems like there's some group that's in Philippi, and we get this all over the New Testament with so many different churches. Uh, There's some group in Philippi that's trying to push them, coerce these Christians into circumcision, into taking on aspects of the Old Testament law as part of their Christian obedience. And Paul's saying, no, beware of these people, beware of these dogs. And Paul refers to them as dogs. Now, that would have a little bit of a different connotation for them than it would for us. We would think if you call someone a dog, it's merely an insult, right? You're worthless. Uh, But it carried the connotation back then for this is how Jews would often refer to Gentiles. Uh, People are outside of the, the clean, pure covenant people. They were dogs. So it carried this element of uncleanness. You think of uh, the ministry of Jesus when uh, the woman comes up to him. I think it's maybe the Syrophoenician woman who comes up to him and, and is asking him to do something. And, and, and she says to him, oh, please, just uh, help me, Lord, help me. And he says to her, is it right for me basically to help a dog, to, to help the dogs? Isn't it to the children of Israel that I've come, not to the dogs? So you see that comes through where it's talking about Gentiles, unclean. And that can sound kind of jarring in that Uh, exchange between this woman and Jesus if you don't know that context. But what does Paul do here? He looks at these people who are prescribing Jewish law and he calls them unclean, outsiders, dogs. 
sort of flips the script on them. They're the outsiders now. They're the unclean ones. And what does he say? We, Christians, who reject circumcision as a requirement, we are the circumcision. So you see, he's flipping the script on these these false teachers. He's saying, you're the dogs. You're the uncircumcision. Why? Because our hearts are circumcised. It's not about mutilation of the flesh, because that's all circumcision is at this point. It's not gaining you any merit with God. Uh, It's mutilation of the flesh. We are the true circumcision. You are the dogs. So it's in this context of correction of these false teachers that we get this wonderful statement of righteousness and faith and works and how these things relate. So that's Paul's premise. So these false teachers of the circumcision party. Two, Paul's past. Paul's past. Righteousness from the law. So in response to these false teachers, this is where we see some heavily autobiographical material from Paul here. Material about himself. Which is perfectly appropriate and fitting for this letter. Because as I've mentioned in literally every other sermon in this series, these people are dear to Paul. And Paul is dear to these people. There's a unique affection and warmth and depth of relationship that exists between Paul and the Philippian congregation. And so it's perfectly fitting for him to give them all this information about himself, his experience, how he once thought and how he thinks now, and then tell him or tell them to do what he does. He says this clearly in verse 17 later in the chapter. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. So he presents himself as a model to this congregation. And so he begins by boasting, quote unquote, in these achievements of his past. And much could be said about each of these things, but we don't want to spend too long on any one of these. But I do have some general observations to make. Paul lists these attainments, these status markers, that he once counted as a reason for boasting, a reason for confidence before God. Of course I can stand before God and be confident. Look at all these things that I've done. Look at who I am. I'm Saul of Tarsus, don't you know? I studied at the feet of Gamaliel. What does he say? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul's boasting about these works that he's done. Of course, he's not really boasting. What's he doing? He's challenging, right? He's challenging these false teachers that are talking about circumcision and these things you must do in order to attain righteousness before God, he challenges them and says, if anyone has a right to confidence in the flesh, confidence in their own works, it's me. You know, pony up. You think you got something to brag about? I've got more. So Paul is issuing a challenge to these Judaizers, perhaps. So what does he say? As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee which according to Paul's own testimony in Acts 26 before Agrippa, when he's describing sort of his his story, he says the Pharisees are the strictest sect among our religion. And Paul excelled in that strictest of sects. So that says something about him, his devotion to God and to the law. 
He was zealous. I was a persecutor of the church. So, so zealous was Saul uh, about the tenets of Judaism that for the church, these people that reject the tenets of the law, they think they found a way to God outside of the law, blasphemy. So zealous was I for the law, I persecuted those people who rejected the law. Said the law was passing away, how dare they? I persecuted those people. For they were teaching people to abandon things like circumcision. And in all as pertained to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. His track record of law keeping was unimpeachable. You could not approach Paul, Saul at that point, and point out ways in which he was failing to keep the law. Blameless. Unimpeachable. Above reproach in terms of his keeping of the law. But it's interesting to note that most of the things that Paul lists are not actually works he's done. They're not actually things he accomplished, things he did. They're just facts about him surrounding his birth. Right? That's most of the list. That's four out of the seven. Let's read them. Circumcised when he's eight days old. He's got nothing to do with that. Right? He's born an Israelite. Yay, Paul, good job, but that's nothing he's done, right? He's born into the tribe of Benjamin, same thing. You didn't, you didn't make the decision to be born in the tribe of Benjamin. It wasn't your wisdom that caused you to be a Benjamite. Not only was his birth Hebrew in nature, his lineage was Hebrew in nature. He's a Hebrew that comes from Hebrews. No Gentiles here. You could say he's a, a pure-blooded Hebrew, an Israelite through and through. And the reason I draw our attention to this aspect of the text, I think it helps us to understand the claims to righteousness that the Jews felt. It wasn't just, we do good works, we are therefore righteous, and God accepts us on the basis of our good works. They, placed a, they pushed a lot of their chips onto their lineage, their birth, the circumstances surrounding their birth. Uh, I'm a Jew. God made promises to the Jews. Uh, there's a very ethnocentric arrangement here. God made promises to this people. I am among this people. So what's God going to do? Turn me away? I'm a Jew. I'm a son of Abraham. Right? We hear that come up in the New Testament a lot in the ministry of Jesus. When John the Baptist shows up on the scene to prepare the way for Jesus, what does he say to the Jews? Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. So, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, is what John tells the, the Jews to do, preparing for the ministry of Jesus. So, Paul here in his boasting, he's boasting, yes, about things he's done, but he's also boasting about who he was. He was a Jew, one of God's promised chosen people. And not just a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He came from Jews and he was a Jew, circumcised on the eighth day. Again, find a chink in the armor of my adherence to Judaism, is what Paul's saying. Who among you, false teachers, or even Philippians, are going to find some sort of grounds or merit 
for being accepted before God if I'm standing here with this whole pedigree telling you it can't be done. So, Paul's past, Paul found his righteousness in not only what he did, yes, but who he was as a Hebrew. Paul is not a shoddy adherent of Judaism. His bona fides in terms of his Jewishness were well established. However, and this is just a a sidebar statement, don't interpret any of this as Paul rejecting his Jewishness. The book of Romans makes that clear. Paul's not saying, oh, the Jews are rejected. There's no profit to to being a Jew, being a Hebrew, being an Israelite. It's not what he's doing. He is saying that to depend on any of these things, to use a word from the text, to have confidence in any of these things before God, blasphemy. No, absolutely not. May it never be. And now Paul's present, and this is where we'll spend the most of our time. Paul's present. So Paul's past, righteousness from the law. Paul's present, the way he understands things now, righteousness through faith. So there's a stark difference in this text, a a contrast in this text between how Paul once thought and how Paul now thinks. There's a watershed in this text. But that, that, that moment of difference where that hinged for Paul isn't specifically mentioned, but we know what it is. You have Saul of Tarsus boasting in himself, his status, his deeds, and now Paul the Apostle saying that in Christ I count all those things as rubbish, trash, refuse. What changed? Well, if you know Paul's story, you know that decisively This shift happened one day when Saul was on his way to Damascus. Not looking for Christ, not seeking out Christ, looking to destroy Christ's church. Going to Damascus to arrest believers. And what happened? Christ comes to Paul. Christ finds Saul on that road. Listen to Paul's own account, and you can even hear some of the similarities And Paul's telling of this in Acts and the way he's writing about this in Philippians. So Paul's speaking to the people of Jerusalem in Acts 22 and he says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, the church, to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. But as I was on my way to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. So if you know Paul's story, you know this is the decisive conversion moment for Paul. This is where everything changes. Huge shift in his life. And you can hear him kind of doing the same thing 
that he did in this retelling in our text. He brings up the strictness of being a Pharisee, brings up his zeal for God, and even attaches that zeal to persecution of the church. He brings up his Jewishness, establishing his bona fides as a Hebrew. And then, that Saul, that Hebrew of Hebrews, was arrested by Christ and everything changed. He had seen Christ and seen him as surpassingly worthy. Every other reason that Paul had for confidence before God was to be abandoned. Anything that hindered him from Christ was to be tossed aside as unprofitable. And so, let's examine the way that in our text, as a result of that huge watershed experience, how does Paul presently view his righteousness? How does Paul think about righteousness before God? Confidence before God? Well, some commentators have called this text, kind of verses 7 through 11, uh, the essence of Pauline theology. So if you look at Paul, who wrote all this material in the New Testament, and you you, you boil down his theology to, to one concentrated section, some commentators would argue this is it. And if you've spent much time with Paul, you'll know why that attribution is given. The warm descriptions about life in Christ in this text. Uh, the, the looking forward, the anticipation towards a coming glorious resurrection. Specifically, though, the emphasis on faith and righteousness. Righteousness before God coming from Christ and by no other means. I mean, listen to some other places in Paul's writing and hear the similarities to our text. Romans 3. By deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. 2 Corinthians 3, Paul calls the law the ministry, the ministration of death that was passing away. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says the law is what gives sin its strength. Romans 10, Paul says, talking about Israel, that they were ignorant of God's righteousness. They sought to establish their own righteousness, and they did not submit, therefore, to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness is based on the law, and he says, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So if you want eternal life from the law, you've got to do the law. It's only the person who does the commandments that will live by them. He quotes the same text in Galatians 3. Paul says, It's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And here, in our text, Philippians 3, we have this great statement that being found in Christ... Paul has a righteousness that is not his own. It does not come from the law, but through faith in Christ. It's God's righteousness that comes through faith. So I want to make some observations about this text. First, Paul's attempts at gaining his own righteousness must be completely abandoned. Any attempt at Paul gaining his own righteousness has to be abandoned. 
This is the really important takeaway from this text. Paul rejects his circumcision, his Hebrew lineage, his former zeal as a Pharisee. He rejects all of these things as grounds for confidence that you're going to receive righteousness through them, by them. The book of Romans makes clear uh, Paul's not scoffing at Israel. He's not renouncing his Jewishness. But he does spurn these qualities as, as reasons for confidence before God. I can trust in these things. I want to look good before God. Look at my pedigree. Look at what I've done. In that sense, Paul does fully reject these things. They do not give a right to God's favor. Even more so, Paul's acts of righteousness are not merely useless, they're harmful. You get that from this text? It's not gain, it's not even worthless. They are loss, they're liabilities, hindrances, obstacles to true righteousness. All of these accomplishments do the very opposite of what Paul, Saul, hoped they would do. So his argument is, if you're as righteous as Paul, and even that does not merit righteousness before God, what can you do? What hope do you have? If you're trying to approach God on the basis of your own goodness or your own qualities, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here, is what Paul is saying. Hopeless, worthless, worse than worthless, loss, liability. So if you're not a Christian, you, if you're not a Christian, you don't know Christ, and you think that what Christians believe is, by my own obedience... Uh, by coming to church regularly, by my accomplishments, by joining this sort of Christian club and being around these people and associated with them, if you think that can set right the balance of sin that weighs against you, you are sorely mistaken. That's not what Christians believe. No one in this room who's a Christian thinks they're a Christian because they did some good stuff. In fact, that's the opposite of becoming a Christian. It is necessary, if you want to be a Christian, to admit your sin, your shortcomings, not your goodness. You may not even identify with Saul here. So again, Paul is looking back and thinking, I was good, I was righteous, I had all these things in my favor, but I had to reject those things and realize that it's faith in Christ that, that, that gets me righteousness. You may be saying... Well, I have, no, I have no bones about the fact that I'm, I'm a sinner. You know, I, I, don't have a, I don't have a lot of good stuff in my column. I don't identify with what Paul's saying there. I don't have that experience. I know I'm a sinner. Well, in that case, you have to understand the Christian gospel to you, the Christian good news to you is not going to be, well, do better. Fix your life. You want to come to Jesus? You want to be a part of this? You got to be cleaned up, pal. That's not what Christians believe. It's the exact opposite of what Christians believe. The Christian gospel is called good news because it demands that you give up those efforts at establishing your own righteousness. You lay them aside. You count them as loss, as unprofitable. 
The Christian gospel is coming to God and hoping in his righteousness, uh, not bringing your own righteousness to him in order to appease him or satisfy him. You see that in the text today. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from obedience, but the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Now, even though this text is speaking about conversion, how unbelievers think about attaining righteousness with God, I think it definitely has implications. Uh, It has a lot of things that we could take from that as Christians and apply to the impulses that still live in our hearts, right? Those law-keeping impulses that still survive even though we've been converted, that we've had this change of thought, this conversion. For instance, if you're a Christian and you find that in order to please God, you find yourself looking to your activity. In order to feel like God is happy with you, you look to the things that you've done, things you've been consistent in or successful in. If you determine in your mind, okay, God feels sternly towards me. God frowns at me because I've done this or failed to do that. Or, conversely, if you think, oh, God is happy with me because I have done this or I've successfully avoided doing that. Let me say to you, Christian, be very careful. Be very careful thinking that way. Because it is right to say uh, God looks favorably on those who walk uprightly. That is a right thing to say. However, we must not place our hope for God's favor in our moral goodness. You understand that difference? It's subtle, because sin is subtle. And the insidious thing that can can happen is you can take a, a biblical truth, like, okay, it is a good thing to do good things, it is a bad thing to do bad things. That's simple and true. But you can take that and you can try to then establish your favor with God, even as a Christian, in your own moral goodness. Oh, God is happy with me. God smiles at me because I have done this or that or not done this or that. Let me give you a foundational truth of the Christian life, okay? God does not need your goodness. You, instead, need his goodness. Right? God does not need your righteousness. You need his righteousness. Uh, The Bible tells us this clearly. Paul says this clearly. Listen in Acts 17. When he's on Mars Hill, Paul says... The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So, Christian, do you think of God as stern towards you? Do you think of God as being angry at your disobedience? And if there's a sense in which that's true, 
Because there is. Of course God's angry at your disobedience. Not because he's going to condemn you. There's no condemnation for you if you're found in Christ. But because your disobedience leads to the opposite of your joy. So of course God is angry when you disobey. But as a father is is upset when his son disobeys, son, listen to my words. My words are life. My words are wisdom. Obey my words and your life is going to be better. I say those sorts of things to my son. Owen, look at me right here. My words are wisdom, son. Listen to daddy's words. So of course God's going to be upset when you disobey, but it's because he loves you and he wants what's best for you and sin is the worst thing for you. But let's assume he is angry at you for your sin. How, what's your solution to that? How are you going to put a smile on God's face where you think there's a frown? How are you going to make God happy with you? Are you just going to redouble your efforts? Think, okay, I've got to be better. I've got to work harder. Okay, I've got to read my Bible more. I've got to pray more. Then God will be happy at me, right? He won't, be, he won't be mad at me. I'll make him happy if I do this and this and this. Even as Christians, who would, we, could, we could write a paper on the fact that we are not righteous because of our works. Sin is insidious. Those sorts of things are going to pop up. So, how are you going to make him happy? How are you going to appease God? What are you going to offer to him? If your solution is just to do better and try harder and that will make God happy, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. What does God need that you or I could satisfy? What deficiency does God have that we would propose to fill? No. What's the solution if God is displeased at you, if he's, <clears throat> to use a Bible word, if God is grieved at your disobedience, what's the solution? The solution is to hope in God, Christian. The solution is to trust him. Wait on him. God gets glory when you wait on him and depend on him to meet all your needs. Because that highlights the fact <clears throat> He's the strong one, you're the needy one. You don't have things that he needs you to fulfill. You have needs that he delights to fulfill. You have shortcomings that he longs to meet. This is God's message to his people over and over again. I work for those who wait for me, who trust in me, who hope in me. In Psalm 116, the psalmist asks, What shall I repay to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Okay, so God's done all these good things for me. I feel like I've let him down. I feel like I come up so short. Uh, What can I do to pay him back? How can I repay God for all the good he's done me? What will please him? What work can I do? You want to hear the answer? Here it is. What shall I repay to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of my salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. So, brothers, sisters, we must reject any attempt at establishing our own righteousness and instead, if we want to please God, 
We lift up the cup of our salvation. We say, Lord, fill my cup again. Lord, I need you again. God, help me. That delights God's heart. Think of it. You can make God delight. You can make him happy. By doing what? What good work can you do? You come to him and you say, Lord, I need your help. God, I'm a sinner. I want to stop sinning. I hate my sin. The other day, blessed moment, uh, my son Owen was being mean to his brother again. Not listening to daddy. Owen, be gentle with Ransom. Be gentle with him, son. And then Owen runs back over there and tackles him and puts a knee in Ransom's chest and he's laughing all the time. I said, Owen, come here, bud. Come here. And he knows he just did it again. Starts crying. I said, son, what'd you do? He said, I didn't listen to daddy again. You hear that frustration? Praise God for that as a parent. Hopefully, may it be that this is the beginnings of him starting to realize, yep, can't do it. I did it again. Who will deliver me from this body of death, this disobedience? So Christian, you find yourself sinning again. You find yourself letting God down again. What does God want you to do? What would please him? Come to him and ask for help. He longs to help you. He delights to help needy sinners. He's waiting, beckoning. Come to me. Hope in me. Wait on me. So how would we please God? What righteousness of our own would we offer to him? We lift up the cup of our salvation and we call upon the name of the Lord. That's what we do in order to please God. Paul makes clear in this text our only hope for good standing with God, good news, is faith. Trust Him. Any any other effort to gain God's favor will become a burden that you cannot carry. A burden that will drag you down to hell. Why? Because it turns into self-exaltation. You hear it in Paul's tone here. If you're trying to establish righteousness with God through any other means than faith, it's going to turn into, look what I did. Look who I am. Don't you know who I am? A Hebrew of Hebrews. A zealous Pharisee. Even good things, like obedience, can serve... Well, no. Actually, I'm going to re-say that. Even good things like our righteous deeds can serve to damn us if divorced from faith. Because, and this is why I changed my word there, if it's not of faith, it's not obedience. Faith is obedience. And if you're acting outside of the realm of faith, you are not obeying God. You're seeking to establish a righteousness of your own that comes from the law. Instead of coming to Christ whose burden is light, whose yoke is easy. So that's our first and biggest observation. Any attempts at establishing our own righteousness must be abandoned. We come to God on the basis of faith. Two, second observation from this portion of the text. God's righteousness came to Paul through his union with Christ. Note in verse nine, look at the text. 
Paul says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, it's his being found in Christ that secures righteousness for him. And this brings us to really another foundational element of the Christian faith, which is union with Christ. A phrase like being found in Christ, that's a small phrase with a massive biblical background behind it, especially if Paul's using it. Paul uses phrases like that all throughout his letters, hundreds of times, in the Lord, in Christ, in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. And for Paul here, it's his being found in Christ that is attached to this righteousness that he receives. So when a person receives Christ, just a word on union with Christ, when a person receives Christ, comes to Christ, takes part in Christ, their very identity, existentially, their very identity is bound together with Christ's in a mysterious way, such that Paul will say things like, when, I, or when Christ died, I died. Because Christ was raised from the dead, I will be raised from the dead. Uh, our hope of glory is Christ in us. And all of God's promises are secured for us because we are in Christ. There's this Christ in us, us in Christ, mysterious union that Paul makes much of. In fact, in Ephesians 1, he says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ. Secured for us in Christ, bound up in Christ. And just like Paul, when we are converted, we gain Christ, and in him, we gain everything. Paul says things like this, all things are yours because you are Christ's. So because we are in Christ, we gain all things. Outside of Christ, we gain nothing. We have no, what advantage would we find outside of Christ? Outside of our union with him? Nothing. Rubbish. Loss. So it is Christ that will commend you to God. If you're called by God, it's only because God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Paul tells us as much in Romans 8. And perhaps what is the boldest statement on union with Christ in the whole New Testament, Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul says, he takes this principle of union with Christ to such an extreme that he says, it's not even me living anymore. Christ lives in me. Any life I now live, it's only by faith in the Son of God. And what does he say after that? I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So you hear that in that text, in Galatians, just like in ours, this issue of our righteousness is tied up with our union with Christ. 
It is because we are united to Christ and we gain all the benefits of Christ that we get righteousness from God. So let me emphasize the same point in just a different way. Christian, your righteousness does not come from your good deeds. It comes from your union with Christ. So, if you find it a frightful prospect to stand before the living God and give an account for your life, how much comfort should we gain from the knowledge that we are to be found in Christ on that day? We'll be clothed in his righteous robes, right? We appear before God in Christ. This is, this is deathbed sort of comfort here, right? You're, you're aware, perhaps, that your life is drawing to a close. Your life on earth is, is near its end. I submit to you, what could be more comforting than saying to yourself, Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my righteousness. I'm about to meet God and I'm not looking to my own deeds, my own righteousness, my own goodness for if God were to mark iniquities, who could stand? No, my righteousness is mine because Christ gave it to me. I have righteousness from God because I have it in Christ. Christ's own righteousness is mine. Again, that's, that's deathbed comfort. That's, I'm about to stand before the living Christ. What can comfort me? He's given me his righteousness. I've been supernaturally united to him. I've said this before, but what did Christ say to Paul on the road to Damascus? He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul didn't persecute Christ. Who did he persecute? He persecuted Christ's people. And such is the, the mysterious union between us and our Lord that Christ says truthfully to Saul, I am Jesus Christ whom you are persecuting. You persecute my people, you've done it unto me. Conversely, you give them a cup of cold water, you've given me a cup of cold water. Such is the union, Christian, that you have with Christ. And so, in that union, Christ in you, you in Christ, what do you get? Everything. All things. But namely, here, you get God's own righteousness. Guaranteed. Yours for the having. A free gift through faith in Christ. That should be the source of our confidence. That's trusting in Christ. Leaning on Christ hoping in Christ. And that's what Paul's prescribing here. You're a sinner. You need righteousness. Do not go about trying to get your own righteousness with your good deeds. No. Much safer to be found in the arms of Christ. Much safer to be united to Christ and have access to his righteousness. Having a righteousness from God that depends on faith. Finally, Last observation I want to make from this text. And this isn't like a Paul finally. We're halfway done. This is a legitimate finally. We're closing here. Finally. 
I want to return to the context of this text and kind of prepare us for what's ahead. Remember, the whole reason that Paul is launching into all of this wonderful content about righteousness and faith and God and the law after he's already said, finally, brothers, is because he wants to address false teaching. He's worried about these dogs who mutilate the flesh trying to convince these Christians to be circumcised that might threaten that unity and harmony and love that we've discussed over and over again in this book. And so, in light of this great threat to the church at Philippi, these false teachers coming in and threatening the love and unity and harmony that he's trying so hard to stoke up, what does he give them as a, as a response? What's his solution to this problem of false teaching? All the material we have here in our text. Doctrine is his solution. But not just doctrine, practical doctrine. What old Puritan divines might have called experimental doctrine. Experiential. Because he doesn't just stop at this um, sort of esoteric discussion of righteousness and law and these big abstract categories. He takes it right to the heart of the Christian life because he's going to talk about what? Knowing Christ. Knowing his surpassing worth. His, his excellencies, his, his glory. We know these things. We share in his suffering. We experience, really experience the power of his resurrection. And this has been true of the church throughout its history. It's often the case that heresy, false teaching, will lead to clear statements of doctrine. Uh, we confess the Nicene Creed at this church often. Why do we confess the Nicene Creed? There would be no Nicene Creed if there hadn't been a heresy called Arianism. So often it's in response to these false teachings and these bad ideas about God that we are called to do what? To clarify what it is that we believe about God, about us, about the world, and then to allow that belief to affect the way we live. Practical doctrine. What we believe and what we do. So, placing this text in the context of the letter as a whole, Paul, using his own experiences, his past as an example, is urging the Philippians to more clearly understand the source of their righteousness so that they can unanimously, unified response to this, they can reject the false teaching of anyone who would lure them into having confidence in the flesh, confidence in their own works. He doesn't want the faith of the Philippians to be upset by those coming in and demanding things like circumcision. So he employs practical theology. So this week, a lot of time looking at Paul, Paul's experience, him abandoning those things that were once a source of confidence before God, and then his coming to faith in Christ. Next time we meet in Philippians, God willing, we'll go deeper into those last verses of the text. Knowing Christ, experiencing Christ, Christ's surpassing worth, the universal Christian experience. What is it like to be a Christian? What is it like to know Christ? That's what's coming. I look forward to it. Let's pray.